This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, the mental toll of repeated disasters. You hear from a psychologist in Lismore who's not only trying to support residents but is also flooded in. And the housing shortage in regional Australia is hitting those most in need. There's nothing available in rural regional Australia, not only for victims of domestic violence, we also support people with cancer and just trying to liaise and find houses for them has been so hard. We begin with the floods today and the emotional cost of more flooding across northern New South Wales is building as residents gradually get access to homes and businesses flooded for the second time in a month. In Lismore, the water is receding slowly, leaving another big clean-up task in its wake. Stephanie Smale reports. Lismore local Matt Mason turned up early to inspect the latest flooding through his already damaged business. I've just made it in via a very long way round, so it's just no power, no noise. Although the street's blocked off, it looks like it's only been in my workshop a foot. I expected to come in and see at least a metre. I mean, it was up to the gutters four weeks ago. What does this flooding mean for your clean-up? It means clean up again. It's definitely not as bad, but it's total disruption and a major pain in the ass and a major flood. He's staying with friends until repairs can be done on his home in the same street and says it will be tough to keep up the energy needed to get his livelihood back. He says the outside help on offer in the early stages of the disaster has gone and locals are battling to get financial assistance. You know, oh yeah, let's come and help. Oh yeah, great. And then it just drops off a cliff and then you're on your own. The sooner you you realise you're totally on your own, honestly, the better you are. Getting on the phone, you've lost everything. Even your accountants who who they want some figures for your business, you know, that's a hassle. Your your computer, every single thing is gone and their phone's asking you for this and that and this and that and jump through every hoop to, to, to give you some money. They don't give you any money. It's a joke. We've got three sisters who lost everything, one our business as well. You know, it's affected so many people. You just have to keep going. Are you concerned yeah. about people's mental health? Oh, absolutely. I reckon a lot of people's mental health will suffer for sure. Ridley Bell helps run the Lismore Soup Kitchen, which provides food, accommodation and support for the community. The 16 residents were moved to higher ground again this week after fleeing a month ago. Almost soul-destroying, you could say, and uh, and it affected me. And, you know, people would you know, ask me how I'm going and you'd, you'd find it hard not to sort of, you know, well up emotionally inside, you know. But he warns there's an urgent need to get locals back into their homes or long-term accommodation and he's calling for more transparency about how donation dollars are being used to do that. When a person is living on the bank of the river in a tent or under a bridge or whatever, it's almost impossible for them to get themselves out of it without someone giving them a hand up. So part of the issue of getting people back strong mentally will be to get them back into their own homes, believe me. So I'm asking the government to say, let's have accountability from you, you organisations that are raising all this money, and let's make sure it's not sitting in bank accounts somewhere, but it's actually getting out to the people that have need and get those people back into their homes. Communities south of Lismore destroyed by the floods four weeks ago have been bracing for the worst again, but there are signs of hope. 
Jim McCormack's farm is at Swan Bay near Korakai. It's gone under again. Uh, fortunately, the house should be fine this time, or what's left of the house from the last event. But uh, the t- farm is totally inundated once more. He says the majority of local roads are underwater, but most homes in nearby Woodburn have been spared so far. We're confident that at this point in time, and we can't see any systems like we got the other night on the horizon, so hopefully we're, we're going to escape coming into the town. Damage from the violent storm seems endless, with temporary accommodation for those who've lost their homes affected too. The Mayor of the Ballina Shire, Sharon Cadwallader, says people staying at Lake Ainsworth have had to be moved all the way to Brisbane after the sewerage system was damaged. Unfortunately, we're just really out of accommodation. Until that temporary accommodation arrives, I believe that will start arriving towards the end of next week. We need so much more. That's Sharon Cadwallader, the Mayor of Ballina Shire, ending that report from Stephanie Smale. The next voice you're about to hear will give you a sense of what some people are dealing with in the flood zone. Talkback caller Michael phoned ABC North Coast this morning. Michael and his dogs were trying to keep dry after waking up to a foot of water. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine now. I'm just glad my dogs are good. Oh, Michael, what are they? Just my, my, my best mates. You, you can hear Jack when I start crying. Jack starts barking. <laughs> he understands me. Oh, bless. What, what is he? I'm fine. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. That's all. I'm fine. I've got food. I've got dog food and we're fine. Hopefully it'll all go away now. Let's talk about caller Michael there speaking to Joanne Shoebridge on ABC Radio North Coast this morning. So what is the psychological toll for residents after being hit by floods again only a month after they were washed out? Lee McDougall is a clinical psychologist living and working in the Lismore area. All we can do as human beings is to acknowledge what is within our control and the only thing in our control at the moment is our attitude, is how we react to it. But the reality is our nervous system is switched on. It's on alert because the the real threat, this may happen again. How much of a sense of frustration is there for people who've put in so much hard work over the past four weeks, cleaning up and getting in the mindset of recovery uh, only to get hit again? Look, I think that's going to come over the next few days and weeks. At the moment, people are just trying to focus on what's happening. We've already had so many businesses who you would have seen it took two weeks to kind of take that stock take and look at the cost of rebuilding and and unfortunately make that horrendous call to not go, not to reopen their business doors again. That's heartbreaking for people. That's their family. That's their life. You know, this is some of these businesses have been in Lismore for 25 years. So that's not a decision that they've taken lightly. Um, And, you know, the community outpouring of love and grief, I mean, it's all evident on social media. As a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist, the perspective is always, you know, at the moment where there's loss, there's grief. So we have to be allowed the time and space to grieve. Yeah, people always ask, you know, oh, do they need help? Do they need to come and see a psychologist? And and I always say it's too soon. By all, it's what what we provide in the first instance is what's called psychological first aid. 
how psychologically we kind of wrap you and in a in an emotional blanket and hold you and allow you the space to grieve. As a as a psychologist, but also as a member of a of the community, what's it been like for you, Lee, as a professional dealing with people uh, experiencing this disaster? But you're also a member a member of the community yourself. Mm, that's a great question, Sally. I've spoken. I've spoken to quite a few of my colleagues, colleagues, and I actually uh, spoke to my supervisor about this last week. And this has been very different for me and certainly for, for psychologists working in this area because this is our story. Um, I think I've used the term wobbly. I have felt a bit wobbly for <laughs> the last uh, five weeks. Um, I haven't been providing full service because my business was affected in the flood. I have been trying to do what's called telehealth. It's not ideal for a lot of clients. You've seen a lot and the community has seen and experienced a lot in the past few weeks. Is there something that you've seen or a conversation that you remember that's really stuck with you as a, a real symbol of resilience in the past few weeks? Ah, it's funny that you use that word. What sticks with me is that I have had said to me last week, I am sick of that word. I'm sick of the word resilient. I don't feel resilient. And I thought that was a very powerful a statement by by a client to me, and I thought because what what she was experiencing was that she felt like a failure because she wasn't feeling resilient. She was feeling overwhelmed. She was feeling sad. She was crying, and and everyone was saying, "Oh, but we're so resilient." And and so it's walking that fine line, dusting yourself off, picking yourself up, and going, "Oh well, I just have no choice." But we do put one foot in front of the other, and we do keep walking. That's Lee McDougall there, a clinical psychologist living and working in the Lismore area. Well, some residents are questioning whether a better warning system is needing needed after evacuation orders in some parts of the flood zone were issued, cancelled and issued again. But the SES has defended its actions, saying it was doing its best with the information available. So does Australia need to have another look at the effectiveness of disaster warning systems? Rachel Mealy reports. As the rain thumped down in Lismore on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, sirens rang out, warning residents to get out of their homes yet again. An evacuation order for parts of Lismore had been cancelled on Tuesday afternoon and some had returned to their homes. Then, in the early hours of Wednesday, it was reinstated. Lismore local Nancy Casson told Channel 9 it was hard to keep up. For me, I was incredibly disappointed with the instructions from SES. We had an evacuation and then a not evacuation and then an evacuation again. I was so confused. She says it falls on the SES to communicate evacuation warnings and it's not a fail-proof system. I, I don't know what is lacking in their instructions to us. I don't know why they constantly get it wrong. Ed Bennett is from the New South Wales SES in Lismore. He says the Bureau of Meteorology downgraded its prediction of river heights late on Tuesday. So the bomb downgraded their prediction to nine point something and then down to 8.2. And we thought, oh, great, you know, it's, it's over. We're not going to get any more heavy rain. And then, of course, everything went pear-shaped and the system dumped that very intensive, very heavy rainfall. But the early warning failures didn't stop there. As the Wilson River continued to swell throughout the morning, it threatened to break the town's levee. 
Right when the sirens were most needed, they didn't work. The New South Wales SES took to Twitter instead. Lismore Levy overtopping is imminent. The sirens will not sound due to malfunction. Everyone must get out of the CBD immediately. Professor Cheryl Desher is from Griffith University's Cities Research Institute. She says computer models are getting better and better at translating forecasts into how each weather event will impact. There's so much research going on in the university sector around predictive modelling, which means modelling that's using real-time information and the climate change forecasting data that we do have about what's happening you know, now and, and going forward with changes in our weather patterns. To bring that into, it's a, it's a fancy word, probabilistic modelling. That, that word essentially means modelling forward rather than modelling from past patterns. But communicating the warnings and predictions is another part of the puzzle. Professor Desher says investment in the maintenance of warning systems like phone towers, sirens and public address systems is critical government preparing uh, at a local government scale and state government with our federal government uh, partnerships, making sure that we have backup systems for the backup systems is also part of the process going forward and checking them and maintaining them, really important. She says there are mobile-based apps being developed which use real-time weather data and predictive modelling which will provide more direct early warnings. Rachel Mealy. On ABC Radio, across the country, you're listening to The World Today. Overseas now, and Russian President Vladimir Putin's dream of a swift victory in Ukraine is fading. After failing to capture major cities, Russia promised to scale down its military assault on the capital ahead of peace talks. But critics say the Kremlin has not stuck to its word. Catherine Gregory reports. More than a month into its invasion of Ukraine and Russia has failed to capture any major cities or territories. It's very clear that Putin and the Russian government's strategy in Ukraine has been a complete failure. Jacinta Carroll is an international security and defence analyst. We know from intelligence advice given by the US government that they have copies of Russian planning that saw that they intended to take over the government in Kyiv and take significant territory within just a few days. None of that is working and it's on the back foot. While this is a good thing, Jacinta Carroll warns it could actually incentivise Russian President Vladimir Putin to go harder and change his strategy. This means that it's quite dangerous in terms of the prognosis for a peace settlement and from a Ukrainian perspective because it's very clear that the Russian government needs to save face and to be able to declare victory. And it's also clear that they will not stop pounding Ukrainians. The Kremlin had promised to scale back its military offensive on Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and the northeastern city of Chernihiv, areas which it had been hitting hard. That was in an effort to secure some kind of trust before peace talks early next week. But that promise has been broken. 
Residents in those cities have reported intense shelling in just the past 24 hours. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he takes nothing Moscow says at face value. There is an ongoing negotiation process, but for now it's only words without specifics. He also says Russia's promised withdrawal from those cities is more about its failure to capture them. Jacinta Carroll agrees. So all of this is just... Russia trying to make it look like they're they're engaged in good faith when they're not, but just use that time to redeploy, reposition, and likely it appears now that they have said they're going to they're just focusing on eastern Ukraine to use a lot of that capability to focus now down into the east and try to encircle the Ukrainian forces that are there. So, what does all this mean for the peace talks early next week? We've seen. Uh, some development in the way that the peace talks are presented. Certainly the Ukrainians have said that they, they think the Kremlin representatives are actually engaging. She says Ukraine has already flagged some major concessions to kickstart negotiations, the main one being it's happy to adopt a neutral status, meaning it won't join NATO, but it does want some kind of security guarantee from major European powers instead. Jacinta Carroll points out while Russia probably won't accept that, it at least starts the conversation. But there is a big unknown, and that is the extent to which Vladimir Putin is aware of Russia's heavy losses in Ukraine. The head of Britain's spy agency, Sir Jeremy Fleming, has told Australia's National Security College that Vladimir Putin massively misjudged his assault on Ukraine and it's possible his advisers are too scared to tell him. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, what's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. That's the head of Britain's spy agency, Sir Jeremy Fleming, ending that report from Catherine Gregory. Advocates say the housing crisis in regional Australia is now so bad, vulnerable residents, including cancer patients and women fleeing domestic violence, can't find a home. New ABS data shows population growth in the regions is outpacing capital cities for the first time since 1981, largely because of pandemic-driven migration. John Daly reports. In the country town of Stanthorpe in Queensland, gift shop owner Debbie Ann Wilmot does her best to help the town's most vulnerable. She's part of community groups that help women fleeing domestic violence find support and a stable home. But there just aren't enough houses. Uh, there's nothing available in rural regional Australia, not only for victims of domestic violence, um, we also support uh, uh, camp people with cancer and just trying to uh, liaise and find houses for them has been so hard. Yeah, we just, you're at wit's end, you don't know what to do. Stanthorpe is in the Southern Downs local government area, which has one of Australia's biggest rates of migration from capital cities, largely driven by the pandemic. New data from the Bureau of Statistics shows regional population growth is rising, while overall capital city populations are declining. And that hasn't happened since 1981. Debbie-Ann Wilmot says this is taking a toll on those most in need. 
uh, one lady like had a little three-year-old like you, you just you don't want to see them on the streets it's it's heartbreaking and um, what can we do you how can we get more housing uh, it's a crisis the federal government's pre-election budget includes record regional spending with 7.1 billion over the next 11 years targeting four key regions the northern territory north and central queensland the pilbara region in wa and the hunter region in new south wales Regional Capitals Australia is an alliance of 51 regional cities and its chair, Ballarat Mayor Daniel Maloney, says there needs to be a broader distribution of that funding. Consistently, the view is that there's there's many places that, that are growing quite substantially to the rate of around 2-3% per annum. They want to keep growing but do it in a sustainable way and their budgets just don't allow them to keep up. So they really do need the, the federal government and even their state and territory governments to help them keep up with that, that infrastructure spend and the needs of a growing population. There's also a new regional targeted first home buyer scheme and an additional $2 billion for the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation, which provides loans to community housing providers. But regional policy think tank, the Regional Australia Institute, says there's more to be done. It's released a discussion paper putting forward a suite of measures including incentives for regional tradespeople, easing restrictions on relocatable homes and building more medium density and social housing. The Institute's chief executive is Liz Ritchie. We've actually launched a report that's detailed that over the last two decades, housing approvals and investment has not kept pace with population growth. If you couple that with COVID and the regional renaissance, we are at a particularly unique situation. We haven't been here before. And without a clear plan for regional population growth and housing, Debbie-Ann Wilmot says locals in her town will be left to struggle. We've just all got to band together and get some of the most vulnerable people in our communities into some sort of um, normality and all these children that are waiting to live in houses, you know, things that we take for granted every day. That's Stanthorpe gift shop owner Debbie-Ann Whitmot. John Daly with that report. Finally today, the most distant star ever detected has been found so far away, its light has taken nearly 13 billion years to reach Earth. It's an incredibly rare discovery, even with the powerful Hubble Space Telescope. But for scientists, the stars aligned. Sarah Sedgi reports. Trying to spot objects in space so far away is tricky, and usually scientists would be finding things that are bigger, like clusters of stars. So to pinpoint a single star from the ancient universe is extraordinary. Brian Welch, an astronomer at Johns Hopkins University, is part of the team that made the discovery. So we're seeing the star as it was about 12.8 billion years ago, which puts it about 900 million years after the Big Bang. To make a discovery like this, you need an incredibly powerful telescope and some cosmic forces. Professor Alan Duffy is an astronomer at Swinburne University of Technology. Even the Hubble Space Telescope, for all its power, is not a large enough telescope to see a single star without help. And we have a naturally occurring magnifying glass in space uh, known as a gravitational lens, the gravity of an entire cluster of galaxies, in fact, 
has uh, increased the light coming to us from this distant star by you know, perhaps boosting by a thousand times or more to allow us to see this star. It's worth mentioning uh, the star known as, as Arendelle for any Lord of the Rings fans, uh, but I think it's actually from Old English, meaning the morning star, is itself a monster. Uh, uh, 50 times the mass of our, of our sun, at least we imagine, uh, and millions of times brighter. What would be the fate of this star now? Oh, this star will have exploded many, uh, many years ago. And in fact, when you get to the mass of, of this kind of star, you're only going to live for millions of years, not the billions like uh, our sun does. Even though the star is no longer around, it has a lasting legacy. This star is our uh, window into that first generation of stars, the ones that first lit up the, the universe. They also created the elements that would go into new generations of stars like our own sun and indeed even form uh, the planets and, and, and us. We are seeing in this Arendelle star a glimpse into, well, our cosmic origins, quite literally the very atoms that uh, go into us today will have been forged in stars very similar to Arendelle billions of years ago. What do astrophysicists do with this information? Do you study it further or is it just a cool thing to know? No, no, this, this one has to be confirmed. This is a huge claim and thankfully we have the telescope to now do it. The James Webb Space Telescope launched successfully a few months ago. It has the power to uh, look in detail at this uh, star and confirm that it really is as big, as bright, as far away as we uh, think. But um, it's it just a remarkable coincidence that we now have the perfect telescope to confirm a detection of this extraordinary significance and claim. Um, sometimes the stars really do align. That's astronomer Professor Alan Duffy from Swinburne University, ending that report from Sarah Sedgi. That's all from us at The World Today. We'll be back again at the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Liberal Senator Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells has delivered a scathing character assessment of the Prime Minister. Today, Radio National's breakfast host, Patricia Carvelis, takes us through it and what it means as we prepare to head to the polls. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.